Veteran filmmaker and documentary cinematographer Kirsten Johnson joins me to talk about her incredible career and her new Oscar shortlisted documentary, Camera Person. This is Pop Culture Confidential. Hi, I'm Christina Yerling Biro. Welcome to Pop Culture Confidential. I've wanted to speak with her for a while now, but it took a long time for veteran documentarian and cinematographer Kirsten Johnson to have some time to sit down and talk to me. And for good reason. She's always working, traveling, and now speaking a lot about her new documentary, Camera Person, that's shortlisted for an Oscar, and so well-deserved. So I was very happy when it finally happened. A way to describe her new documentary is like a meditation on the role and experiences of Kirsten Johnson's life behind the lens. The film consists of outtakes from her vast career and footage that never made it into some of cinema's most influential documentaries that she's worked on. Kirsten Johnson has worked with, among others, Laura Poitras on the film Oath and Citizen Four about Edward Snowden and with Michael Moore on Fahrenheit 9-11. Camera person moves between outtakes from those films and, for example, Johnson's footage of a midwife at a Nigerian clinic who, under dramatic circumstances, brings a newborn back to life. Houses, churches, and fields of sunflowers where various massacres have taken place. A young woman at a Planned Parenthood clinic who's in anguish over her decision to have an abortion. Johnson and Poitras trying to film the exterior of an Al-Qaeda detention facility in Yemen without arousing the police the site of a mass rape of Bosnian women by the Serbs during the Bosnia War, and lawyers from the trial of the white supremacists who murdered James Byrd in Jasper, Texas in 1998. All this is intercut with Johnson's own children, her twins, and beautiful and extremely personal segments of her own mother, who has Alzheimer's, gently combing Kirsten's hair and not quite sure who her daughter is. The footage shows such bond and love, but as Kirsten Johnson says, also a betrayal of her mother, who would never have wanted to be filmed in the throes of Alzheimer's. It is fascinating how camera person's montage of footage, but with no narration, opens up to all the questions that Kirsten Johnson has asked herself during her long career. The challenging decisions in filmmaking, the joys, the horrors she's seen, fragmented memories of family, but also the ethics and moral choices you have to make during documentary filmmaking, asking subjects to relive horrors, when to film and not, the power of the moving image. And through all her footage, the difficult and the beautiful, you feel Kirsten Johnson's warmth, her empathy, and her huge laugh. Ms. Johnson, thank you so much for talking to me finally. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. And for the amazing movie you've made, I've never seen such a sort of meditation of life. Um, and thank you. And congratulations for being on the Oscar shortlist. Oh, yeah. And I'm with a kind of spectacular bunch of films. It's a really a great year. Can we start maybe um, before we get into it and you can explain your idea with the movie and what the footage is and so on? Sure, sure. Well, basically, I've been an independent freelance documentary camera person for the last 25 years. And I have worked with a lot of different directors, um, probably over 50 different directors. And at a certain point, uh, I became compelled to start asking directors to look again at footage that I had shot for them years before. And uh, 
little by little, I started discovering things in that footage that I wanted to put together. So that's what the film is. It's a collection of footage um, from across 25 years without any voiceover by me uh, to talk about what it is to be a camera person. And I thought we'd get, by talking about a few of the scenes in it, that we can get an idea of what it is. A few of the scenes that actually sort of personally I thought were very very strong and the first one is the one with the baby that's struggling for his life oh yeah I know what you're talking about (laughs) can you tell me a little bit about that that the filming conditions around that and what when this was sure um I went to Nigeria with a director named Don Sinclair Shapiro for a film called The Edge of Joy which was a film about maternal uh mortality and um you know, when you go into a project knowing that you're trying to address the high rates of um, maternal death when women are trying to give birth, you know that you're in for an intense shoot before starting. Um, and we went to a hospital called the Mohammed Murtala Hospital in Kano, Nigeria, which has one of the highest rates of maternal death um, in the world, but is also one of these places where people are working really hard to try to combat it. Mm-hmm. And so they wanted to um, show their work at the hospital. And uh, so, you know, what's interesting when one films, you know, you, you, you go into situations not quite knowing what you're going into. Um, in this case, I knew I was going into something intense. Uh, but what happened there following um, the birth of twins, um, where there was not a doctor present and the C-section was needed, um, but wasn't available, uh, has pretty much haunted me for, you know, the years since I shot it, the six years since I shot it. Mm. Um, but it's haunted me in a peculiar way because I, I know, I, I knew what happened. I remember what happened, but in my mind, there was just this blurry image of a midwife's face. And so when I went back to the footage, I discovered, you know, that there are just dozens and dozens of hours of me shooting this really intense struggle for life of this baby that we include in the film um, just for a handful of minutes. But I think, um, you know, you can confirm this with me as a spectator. I think you feel immediately how life or death the consequences oh, yeah. the stakes are yeah and and how many hours was it you were there with the baby well you know I've been for about half the year of showing this film in film festivals I've been saying 12 hours but uh, I saw the director recently and she said no no we we filmed for 30 hours oh. um so so you know I mean that's one of the things that I explore a lot in this film the way in which our memory uh, tricks us or our brain helps us in some ways to compartmentalize and deal with the really intense or traumatic things that we face in our lives. And that's part of what this film tries to unpack is sort of how do we cope with uh, very large scale exposure to uh, the pain and struggle of other people when we do work like you're doing, the work of journalism or the work of filmmaking. Because the baby there is struggling for life and we keep getting information that they don't have what's needed and and you're always on sort of on the edge. And one thing that I think was very powerful in, in this movie is the sound in this clip.
Oxygen here. And one hears you, and, and, and you, I get the feeling that you're getting very nervous, and, and should I run out? Should I stay in? Um, can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think one of the questions that's come up a lot as I've um, been showing camera person, people ask the question, you know, when do you intervene or not intervene? And my answer in many ways is that if you are there with a camera, you are already involved in an intervention of a sort. Right. Um, and whether or not it is um, helpful or harmful in some ways is simply too uh, binary and too simple a, a question. Uh, and and the fact is, you know, you are there acting in the moment, um, certainly in good faith. You know, I mean, I, I there's no question that if I could save someone's life, I would put down my camera to do so. But in a situation like this, it is not within my capacity uh, to make the oxygen machine work and to, or to do a C-section, uh, you know, et cetera. Um, and yet what is it within my capacity is to continue filming. And I believe that to be, you know, in quotes, the right thing to do because I was there documenting the struggles that a hospital faces when it doesn't have a lot of resources. What we've learned since making that film was that in many ways, because I continued to film, people at the hospital continued to make efforts to um, treat the baby when there really was nothing to be done. Right. Uh, and, you know, then beyond that, what we've also learned is that the father of the twins and uh, he basically was by my side as I filmed and the two of us went through the very painful process of the baby's, you know, struggle to live together. And, um, you know, he now lives in Boko Haram territory. And what I've heard from human rights activists in the region, I don't know this to be true, but what I've heard is that he was very affected by um, the fact that I and the sound person, Judy Carp, stayed with him mm. through that period of his baby's struggle and that it's really made him a person of very strong political conviction that he's a moderate imam and he speaks out on behalf of women's rights and women's rights to health care in a place where it's you know dangerous to his life to do so. And part of what he cites is the reason why he does that is the way we all went through that struggle of his baby together. You know, so so these are what they call unintended consequences, right? And we have no idea in the moment of filming what it's going to mean in the future. In that instance, the fact that you were there really made a huge difference that would not have made if you weren't. Do you have examples of where you you have felt I'm actually putting these people at risk by being here and by documenting this? Well. Absolutely. Across, you know, across my career, I, I ask those questions all the time. And even in a very simple way of, you know, you're asking a person to relive a traumatic experience and you're doing that on behalf of a film that, you know, hopes to address a larger issue. But, you know, there you are in Rwanda asking someone you're going to be with for an hour. What was it like for you in the genocide? You know, and 
And these are terrible experiences that people have lived through that we are asking them to conjure up. And one of the things that for me that was so fascinating in the process of making this film was that I realized I was um, protecting myself by the ways in which my memory didn't completely work around all the terrible things I have seen, right? And so when you are asked to conjure something terrible that you have lived through or even simply witnessed, um, that is that is quite an ask. So those boundaries are very fluid. It depends on case to case where you are and what's happening in the moment. You have to be quick. Yeah, absolutely. And I would say that they're even, you know, that they're fluid they're fluid even with the same person, even even if a person has agreed that they wish to be filmed and they have reasons for doing it, there may be something that they say that changes that equation completely. And another very strong moment for me in, in, among many is the young girl at a Planned Parenthood yes. who's literally torturing herself about getting pregnant. Um, and there you actually hear... It's like stop. You, we can't go on. I can't interview anymore. Um, you, you need to um, stop torturing yourself. Can you tell me about that moment? Yeah, I was there with um, uh, Don Porter, who it's a, for her film called Trapped, and this young woman was really beating herself up about being in the position of needing to seek an abortion, and Don says to her you you can't call yourself a bad person anymore. You have to stop saying that to yourself. And and then I sort of pipe in and say, you know, we've all had unintended pregnancies. So, you know, we've all experienced this. Um, sort of basically just as a gesture of solidarity in this moment to say, you know, we're not in your shoes, but we, you know, we understand what it is to make mistakes and be faced with these terrible choices. And you know, what I find powerful about that scene is she speaks from such a heartfelt place. You don't see her face because she needed to stay anonymous. You just see her hands mm. um, and her legs as she sort of, you know, you can feel all the emotion she's experiencing through watching her hands in some ways. But she, what she says, you know, Dawn asks her to say the sentence, what would you do if this abortion clinic was not here? And what she says is, I would probably give the baby up for adoption, but I don't want to do that. And and she expresses this idea of, you know, she knows how much she would love the baby if she saw the baby. Right. And and that is a really um it's just an incredible thing for a person to say. And in times where the political divisions are so strong, it becomes almost impossible to speak such contradictory truths as that. Um, and of course that the sound of that young woman's voice does not appear in the film trapped because the film is a trapped is a film that sort of advocates, um, for the right to choice for abortion. And so that that sentiment can exist in that film that is an advocacy film in many ways. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and that's what I, you know, in many ways, what I loved about searching through footage was to allow in Footage that couldn't stand in the context of other films that had a different purpose than mine does. You've been a camera person for such a long time with so many incredible films. What are some of the things you learned from the beginning about just how to make people comfortable 
and about people in general when you're coming in there with your with your camera to take a piece of their life, so to speak. Yeah. Well, I mean, I. It's funny. I, one of the things that's been really important to me with this film is like thinking of new ways to speak what we do. You know, so to use the word camera person, for example. Um, or to speak differently than to say, you know, we shoot people or we we take pieces of them. You know, all of those kinds of ideas, I think, um, are ones that that indicate that there's some, you know, sort of uh, unfair exchange going on. Uh, but, you know, on some level, I think that's wishful thinking on my part. The fact is we do take things away from people and hopefully in the act of filming, we are giving things to them too, but sometimes that's not the case. And so I guess my first rule of thumb is to think about why is someone letting themselves be filmed? Mm -hmm. What is their motivation? Why have they agreed to give access? And to recognize there, there are things you do not understand about why that is true. And that that's not a closed story. And to sort of continue to search for understanding of why they are letting themselves be filmed. Mm. And, and and if there are reasons that don't correspond with what is the film that you're intending to make, then you've got to negotiate that, too. You know, if someone assumes that you're making the film for a purpose you are not making it for, uh, then what do you do? And what do you say to them while maintaining access? Right. As we say in quotes, access to the person. Um, and so. I guess for me, like, I, you know, on the most profound level, I would say humility um, and kindness is what we we have to be there with because both the person being filmed and, you know, me with the camera or whoever you are with the camera, you, you, you don't know what you're about to engage in with the other person and uh and sort of trusting that it will reveal things to you that you've never imagined before and that that may or may not be more vulnerable than everybody wants to be mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. so 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 i mean i'm just constantly surprised by where filming goes um and where it leads and so um you know humility i think is the is the big one just know know that you don't know very much. Right, right. When you walk into the room, um, you must get offers nowadays from from all the big documentarians. Um, how do you choose your project? Do you have like a political? Do you choose your project as is, this is a message that I would want to bring out? Why do you work with Laura Portress or Michael Moore, for example? Right, right. Well, I mean, I I absolutely am compelled by. Uh, the people who I work with. So, you know, literally I would work with Laura Poitras on any project because I am so um, deeply moved and impressed by her approach to living and to questioning and um, the nature of collaboration that's possible with her. Um, I really hope not to be involved in projects that have a particular message. Um, I do get engaged in projects that address what I consider to be, you know, very fundamental um, problems or dilemmas or concerns to me. Um, and, you know, they are they are legion <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and ever and ever growing. Um, but, 
you know, I, I've lived through a couple of phases and styles of documentary filmmaking. Um, and I really did have lived through the sort of the era of impact documentary filmmaking. And in many ways, um, many of those films have been disappointing to me. Um, because I think they're a trap in a certain way. When you when you try to do an essay film that addresses a problem, you are quickly reducing the people who are portrayed in it to sort of illustrations of ideas rather than as showing them in their complex humanity. Well, I so agree with you on that point, actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's hard. I mean, I think there was a moment in time where it felt exciting, like, oh, films can maybe make some change and do some things. And certainly films I've been involved in have, you know, there's no question that uh, Lema and Gobi, who um, won the Nobel Peace Prize, would never have won the Nobel Peace Prize, never have come to the international attention that she did without Pray the Devil Back to Hell. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, sort of did that, is that enough? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> um and, you know, I think that's a wonderful film um, that really does tell a, a story that would have gone untold. Uh, but there's so many of these films that we work on that, that can't meet the objective that they set for themselves, which is, you know, to end poverty, for example, or to mm -hmm. end hunger. Right. Um, they can't they can't do it. Um, but then, you know, we go through this you know question round and round of, you know, what changes us as people, what changes our understanding of the world, and certainly films do. I can vouch for that. Can you tell me a little bit about working with, for example, Michael Moore? What What is his style? What What? How? how yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, Michael is an incredibly, um, as one can imagine, uh, hilarious and generous person. Um, but you know, I was working on him. We're working with him on Fahrenheit 9/11, and um, we had this moment where we were going to go up to Congress people and ask them if they had their, if any of their children um, were actually uh, enlisted in the military and were willing to go to Iraq. And there were literally Congress people running away from him mm -hmm. uh, down the street. And, and he sort of turned to me and said, you know, um, uh, I feel just like I used to feel in high school. And, and that was, you know, it's a story that I've told many times because I feel like it's, it's such a reveal. Like it, it basically says he's comfortable with not being liked. Yes. He's familiar with not being liked and he's okay with it. And I think, you know, when you're trying to take on people who will abuse power, uh, that's a great quality to have. And it's a quality that not a lot of people have, actually. Most of us are pretty interested in being liked, myself included. Absolutely. <laughs> but, and, and what about Laura? What about working on Citizen Four? What was that experience like? Well, absolutely. One of the most, uh, you know, intense experiences of my life without a question. And the thing that's wild about Laura is she has just this um, kind of magnificent patience. And she, um, we worked together on the oath uh, where I filmed with uh, Salem Hamdan, who was Osama bin Laden's driver. I filmed the um, events around his trial in Guantanamo. And I wasn't allowed to film the trial, which would go on for eight hours every day. And, you know, any other director would have said, you know, be out in the world filming during those eight hours. And Laura said, be in the courtroom, just listen to what's going on and understand what's happening. And then that informed 
the one hour or two hours that I had to film every day um, with the light that was left. And so, you know, working with her, she's someone who's really interested in ideas. And so she's really interested in the ways in which um, ideas inform the way you shoot. And so basically she, you know, she gives you the time to think, which is not true of everyone. Where were you filming Citizen for? What parts of it were you with her on? Well, Laura and I, I wasn't in Hong Kong. Laura's the one who went to Hong Kong on her own. But basically from the oath forward, we started working on a film that was about surveillance. And so we went to Brazil to film with Glenn Greenwald. We went to Egypt. Uh, We went to uh, the NSA facility in Utah that no one knew about at the time. And sort of every step of the way as we worked together, it was, um, it felt very risky and very unknown territory. We went to England and filmed with Julian Assange. And uh, we did understand that we were getting closer and closer to something that was bigger than we thought and bigger than we could understand. And that's about the time that Edward Snowden showed up. Mm. And so our our hunch was certainly uh, correct, right. uh, but but you know sort of beyond our wildest imaginations. Um, so it was a particularly terrifying experience to to you know go through that period where he had contacted her and I was one of you know literally the smallest handful of people who knew about it and um, helped. Laura make the decision about whether she should trust him, whether she should go. Um, and no news, organi- you know, she reached out to a couple of people and nobody wanted to touch it. Um, and it was incredibly, incredibly, she will never admit to bravery, but uh, I will, I will certainly give her credit for having it. And, and, and which is something you must have had or, or have. Um, you've worked in some of the most dangerous war zones. And, and in the movie, you see some beautiful pictures of, of your children and, and your family. Um, how much do you think about putting yourself in harm's way? Well, I mean, I think, I mean, I, I always um, like to, you know, sort of push back and give perspective on these things. Like, I think those of us who are journalists who choose to go to places are in a completely different position than people whose lives get upended by war, for example. Um, And so, you know, I have always been in the position of a certain privilege that would allow me to come and to go uh, on my own terms, right? And, you know, no person can ever control violence and violence can come out of nowhere to any of us. Um, And in certain situations, that's more likely than others. Uh, But I, you know, I feel much more interested in uh, bringing attention to the risks that people live in uh, on an ongoing basis that, you know, I occasionally visit. And I'm, there's no question that, you know, since I've become a mother, I've thought about it differently in many ways. But I think I've always thought of myself as a person who desired to continue to live and continue to do strong work, but also a person who would be unafraid in moments when courage was necessary. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, at a certain point when you travel around enough in the world, you realize there's a lot of courage necessary and it's necessary all the time. And actually there's a huge amount of work to be done. Um, And So sometimes that's overwhelming and sometimes that's invigorating. Um, 
I was just writing something today about Abbas Kurastami and thinking, you know, sort of thinking about the people that we've lost this year and the various losses of 2016, including the electoral ones. Right. Um, and, you know, I think we have many examples around the world and throughout history of people who have lived and thrived uh, creatively under, you know, abusive regimes who've managed somehow to get the word out about how to be decent humans. Um, and that's the struggle that we all have. We need courage to do, uh, you know, moving forward, I would say. And, and, and of course, you are bringing us these stories of the horrors that these, these people are they're going through and, and with, and of course, um, can't even imagine that, but there must be, um, a certain amount of horror that you have to deal with when you get home. Um, it's like what, what you've seen and what you've heard, um, with all due respect to what they've been through, but how, how do you deal with it? Do you have, have you through the years found a way or do you just let it go? Well, it's funny, you know, I mean, I think that this film was really a reckoning for me. I, I would not have said that I really had much to deal with before I worked on this film. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. I really, you know, I just kept moving forward all the time. And, you know, I'm a person, um, as evidenced in the film, who loves to laugh, maybe not mm -hmm. so much in this conversation. <laughs> but but uh, uh, certainly, um, I take great joy in living and in eating and dancing and laughing with people. And I, you know, I, I'm someone who I have a lust for life. And um, that's always true, no matter where I go in the world. And I find that to be true of people wherever we are in the world together. And so, I mean, part of it has just been the endless feeding of my own curiosity and sense of discovery has been part of what's kept me, I would say, a fairly balanced and healthy person along the way. Um, but working on this film did make me realize that I had accumulated and sort of buried within myself many, many um, difficult experiences and stories. And I do think that, you know, we all, no human gets to avoid a few moments of great trauma. And usually, you know, a couple of those are the deaths of our parents. Um, if we are so lucky to have known our parents and, um, you know, my facing of my mother's illness with Alzheimer's and her death, I think really triggered in me this, this need to slow down and look at what I had been doing. Um, and because of her memory loss, it made me think a lot about memory mm -hmm. and uh, how mine worked. And that's when I sort of discovered how much I had, uh, you know, accumulated inside of me. Uh, but this film has been a real gift to me. And the conversations that have grown out of it, like this one, have been just so meaningful to me and really, um, I think, are part of how I'm now processing what I have spent years filming. Mm. So that's been a therapist. If, if, if that's yeah. Easy oh, yeah. Program. Oh, yeah. 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 And to know that the experiences are shared with so many people is really meaningful. You include your mother who has Alzheimer's in, or who had before she passed in the movie. And, and what you were saying about Joe, even though, it, you know, it's very sad this day, you guys, you laugh. It's such a joyful um, yes. set of she's combing your hair in a way that you can really see that even though things are um, she doesn't really remember, there is this, this great love between you. Um, they're very beautiful. 
Was it difficult to include that footage of your mother? Oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. yeah. Hugely. You no, know, this was, I mean, you know, you brought up first the baby in Kano, and um, I would, you know, both the baby in Kano and the footage of my mother's, you know, the footage that I struggled the most with on many levels. Um, my mother did not want to be filmed by me when she was lucid um, because I think she was from a different era. You know, mm -hmm. I think now we're in this era where people understand you may be filmed many times. You may have many conversations. You know, if this was the only conversation I was having about camera person, I would probably be, you know, speak much more with much more control and purpose and be much more worried about what I am saying. And, um, you know, I am completely committed to this conversation, but I am comforted by the fact it's not the only conversation I will have. Right. But I think in the era when people, um, you know, they would be filmed once it became this sort of terrifying thing of how will I be represented into the future? And my mother held that kind of idea about filming. So she didn't want to be filmed. So I knew that filming her while ill was truly a betrayal of her. Um, even though obviously I'm trying to do it with the utmost tenderness, you know, just to show her in that state, that's not how she wanted to be remembered by the world. I can promise you. Who's this guy? Who's that guy? That's who I married. That's who you married? Uh-huh. Who, who is he to me? You know him too? I know him too. I've known him all my life. Okay. Yeah, I'm serious. <laughs> <laughs> and look, here's me. It's a teeny tiny baby. With that little I'm smile, that right? That's that little smile I do. Okay. How's it go? Wait, let me show me. <laughs> show me how's it? <laughs> I like to smile without opening my mouth, right? Yes. This is a nice little baby. Isn't that cute little baby? Well, don't take a picture when your hair's messed up. Can you fix it? There we go. Oh, yeah. That's looking good. You getting me? I'm trying to get you. Uh... That's good. You're helping me. But as a viewer, one, one sees it exactly the way you meant it. I mean, yeah. she doesn't know that, but... but um, yeah, it, it, yeah. It, but of course, I understand that it's a difficult. Yeah, it was in, it was interesting. I, a, a woman who knew my mother saw the film, and she came up and she said, "That woman on the screen is not Katie Joe," and and it was so interesting. It comforted me that she said that because it was like, oh, she knew my mom. She really knew my mom. Mm -hmm. <laughs> is that would have been my mom's response? Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I'd like to know a little bit about, you've worked for such a while that technically, in terms of, of your equipment, it must have changed so much. And also oh, yeah. the, how much access we, who don't know anything about filming, have to cameras of our own. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I started um, working on film in 16 millimeter, but very quickly moved to sort of the early um, versions of video cameras you know, some of which were enormous, some of which were tiny and of, you know, standard definition quality with integrated lenses. And I basically have worked through sort of one of the worst periods in cameras in the history <laughs> of cameras. Um, and and frankly, you know, that I, I do feel like that speaks something really that I believe in, which is about it is who it is, who holds the camera and how. Um, that matters. Um, and, 
you know, absolutely now there's an incredible capacity that cameras have and almost anybody's phone now can shoot right. a higher quality image than most of the cameras I worked with. But that doesn't change that the footage that I was able to film can be meaningful to people. And, and also that footage and cameras hold their particular moment in history that's in the texture of the image. Um, so you, you, you see that the images that I've shot of Jacques Derrida are from the early 1990s, for example. And that's meaningful to, mm-hmm. to, to be able to ground things in their historical context. Um, what I think is so exciting about the fact that so many people have um, an understanding of filming because they have telephones that have cameras uh, in them uh, is that that people can read each other's visual language. Um, and that's been one of the great reveals of showing camera person around the world is that young people really love it, mm-hmm. I think, because they know what it is to film. And they understand the dilemmas implicit in filming. And they've also got a really sophisticated understanding of visual language. But I mean, I was literally talking to a 16-year-old yesterday who loved camera person. And it just made me so happy. Well, I'm constantly shocked. I have a 10-year-old and a 12-year-old at how they speak about movies that we see and, and images. Yeah. And vid- I mean, it's like, they it's get incredible. It. Like they've been to film school. <laughs> they have been. They have been to film school. They have been. They have been. They are going. <laughs> but if you're going to talk to someone, like let's say my son um, wants to be a, a camera person and, 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 and but he's sees everyone as cameras everyone's do what's the point what what can I what is it you bring what makes a a real sort of camera person and and someone who's a citizen journalist or or something like that well I I I think that it it was Bresson who said basically you know your mission in life is to show that with which with without you would never be seen so that you are the only person who can tell the, or show the particular thing that you have to show. And that doesn't mean you only speak about yourself, but it, it is your point of view on the world. It is your experience, your uh, vision that is what you need to give and to translate. And, and obviously I think, you know, it's a craft. It takes time to learn how to use it, to how to speak in images. Um, and I was certainly a slow learner. Um, and, you know, I'm 51 years old and I've made the film that I feel like begins to speak uh, from really who I am. Uh, it's taken me a long time to get to that place. And part of the joy of camera work is that it's allowed me to do the searching. Um, and that's what camera work is, is searching. Uh, and, and there's space for the searching in it. <laughs> As a small child <laughs> rising, from, rising from the bed. Yay. Hi, <laughs> I'm almost done with that. I'm right here, sweetie. <laughs> you need some milk? Yeah, in one minute, okay? No, I'm going to let you go. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I have one coming home, yeah. too. They're taking a little walk. By the <laughs> okay, great. Well, this has been so fun. I'm so glad to talk to you. It is. Can I just ask you the last question about the title itself? Um, camera person. It, and is that... Does it have to do with cameraman, camera woman? Camera, do you did you have? Yeah, that well, I mean, it just had so much going for it as a word. I mean, in many ways, we need to build this film um, in an order that allowed people to understand it. So we need the title to 
sort of do as much work as it can possibly do. Mm-hmm. Um, and in many ways, it's the only it's the only context that the film really gives. Um, so it, it it has that sort of very utilitarian function right away. It tells you this is what the film is. Um, it's the work of a camera person. Um, and certainly every day that I shoot, I get misidentified as a cameraman. Mm-hmm. Um, so I love pushing back on that. And I was just at the um, Camera Image Festival in Poland. And at the start of the work week, I heard all kinds of people saying cameraman. And at the end, at the award ceremony, three people corrected themselves on stage and said camera person instead <laughs> of cameraman. So I was pretty excited that we're, we're, we're penetrating the culture. Um, but it's also, it's also sort of the, the work working person's name, um, you know, a cinematographer or a director of photography is, is sort of an elevated um, name in many ways. And camera person is really like the person doing the physical labor. Right. Um, and, and that really was meaningful to me. But has there been, how, how is it for, for women? Are, are there a lot of women camera people? Um, and, you know, and how- you know um, there are more and more of base of women who want to do the work and certainly you know many women who shoot their own films um i think women who are able to maintain it as a career over the course of their lifetime is still far from as many as any of us would like and mm. would be good for movies right. <laughs> um but you know it's really interesting i have young um students and as early as 20 they're asking me the question how can you have a family and be a camera person and um so what I do is I ask that question to all of my students now, male and female. I say, how are you going to be a parent and do this work? Um, because I, I think there is a tendency among um, men to not think about um, responsibilities towards family that they might have in the future. Um, and women spend all their time hypothetically thinking about it, <laughs> like for their first, you know, sort of the first 10, 15, 20 years that they could be working, mm-hmm. they're asking, them, they're posing those questions. Um, but I do think it's a uh, work that's challenging. I was lucky to, was my first journalism meant I started working with a woman, um, um, which is, I'm very lucky, but sort of a Barbara Walters of Sweden type who did. And wow. her, her advice to me when I was 20, 21 was, don't worry, have children early. That's what makes you a good journalist. Oh, I mean, it, it's more a question of, you know, what that yeah. does to you as a person and what questions yeah. you ask, um, then and the, the rest you will figure out when you have to do it and how you do it and how you will be with them. That's true. Well, when you have children, you really do have to figure it out. That's yeah. for sure. <laughs> well, I'm going to let you go to the little one now. And thank you. So this was so interesting. And thank you for the great movie. And I will be following along with your success here. Oh, thank you. Well, thanks for thanks for being so terribly patient with us. You've just been adorable about it. And I'm glad we finally pulled it off. Thank you so much to Kirsten Johnson. Camera Person is out at festivals and in limited release and on Blu-ray and DVD on February 7th, and you can pre-order it now. Thank you so much for listening to Pop Culture Confidential. Next week, we will have the director of the one of the most Oscar-buzzed movies of the year, La La Land. Damien Chazelle will be on Pop Culture Confidential. So check back with us then and go to popcultureconfidential.com to listen to old episodes and to check out the new ones. You can follow us on Twitter at PodPopCulture. 
This episode was edited by Tom Hansen, theme music by Carl Borg, and produced by René Wittestedt and myself. I'm Christina Jörling-Biro. Thank you so much. Hi there. I'm Heather Drago. And I'm Sarah Saunders. We host the podcast, That's a Hard No, about saying no and setting boundaries. So you can become that true and empowered you that this world needs. Saying no isn't just okay. It's the key to living an authentic, fulfilling life. I'm a licensed professional clinical counselor. So while this podcast is in no way a replacement for one-on-one therapy, I suppose I know what I'm talking about. I'd say so. We talk about learning to say no and set healthy boundaries and how it impacts mental health, physical health, relationships, parenthood, and more. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website, hardnopodcast.com. We're here to help you find your no and say it unapologetically. That's a hard note.